You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. It is in the New Testament, almost the last book in the Bible. It's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, then the book of Jude, then the book of Revelation. But it's right there toward the back of the Bible. 1 John chapter 1. And what we're going to be doing this um, fall is a, a series over the cross. And we're causing it, we're, we're calling it, it's going to be two parts to it. The first six weeks are going to be called, Because He Has, I Am. And what we're going to look at is the unique plan of salvation God has designed for us. And how it's intended to impact us, things He did. And we're going to do it by looking at six words that are metaphors that describe our salvation. We're going to look at one today called atonement. And that is has in mind fixing a certain need or addressing a certain need that all human beings have because of the fall. There's a one called redemption. There's one called reconciliation. We're going to look at a word called righteousness, one called justification. And, and we're going to go through all these different six words and, and kind of better understand how God intends you and I to experience Him and experience salvation through Christ. So we're, talk, we're calling it because he has gone to the cross, I am what is now in effect because of in our lives because of the, his death on the cross. And then we're going to look at the second thing is going to be because he has, I will. And it goes from being how salvation or how Christ's work on the cross salvages us and affects us, but then to how we live differently because of that. What are commitments we make? How are, does our lifestyle change? And one of the things we're going to do within that part is focus, focus particularly on race relations because that's become a big deal. It was a big deal in the first century church. The New Testament talks a lot about that, and we're going to uh, look at that in a biblical paradigm. I think it's going to be a really exceptional fall we're going to have together. So I'm looking forward to it, and I'm uh, looking forward to getting started. First uh, John chapter 1. If you got that, let me uh, also just tell you this. One of the most powerful forces in your life and my life and the life of any human being is shame. Shame is a powerful factor in our lives. It determines a lot of why we do what we do, how we live, how we think about ourselves, decisions we make. Because of shame, people buy things they shouldn't buy to impress people. Shame is a very, very, very powerful factor in your life. Because of shame, you will do things you don't really believe you should do. It can be a powerful uh, manipulator and a controller. And shame is something the, that Christ addressed in our salvation. Shame is defined as being the feeling of distress or embarrassment caused by a bad moral decision or an adverse set of circumstances. You know, shame is illustrated, if you, if you look it up, shame is illustrated by somebody taking their face and burying it in their hands. 
just, you know, taking your face and you just, it, it depletes you. It shrinks you. It makes you want to just hide and, and go away. The other day I was going to get something in the grocery store at Kroger and uh, I walked in and my usual routine when I go to Kroger, I have it pretty much down. I go, I go to the my right, and there's roses, and you can get roses cheap. So I get a couple roses for my wife, and then the fruits right there. I get the fruit and I get the vegetables, and I come around the corner, and around the corner I kind of take this little bit of a turn down this side aisle, and I go to the bottled unsweetened tea, which I guzzle, and I get a lot of those, and uh, and then I then I come out, and then there's the meat section. And there's a, kind of a big open area, and I'm getting the meat. And I'm kind of noticing that people are kind of giving me a look. And I thought, you know, I'm a nice, friendly guy that I am. I smiled back at them. I thought maybe they go to my church, and they just haven't got a chance to meet me. I don't know what. They just had a couple looks. And I was like, hey, how's it going? And going through. And, and as I was in the meat section, and I was putting meat in my buggy, I realized something. I had forgot my mask. I had walked into a store without my mask on. And I was like, I wanted to just run because I ran out and got my mask. But you just go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't. I forgot. You just want to apologize. You kind of want to acknowledge. Just because shame hits us. Shame affects us. Shame's powerful because I don't want people to see my life or see me as a person or judge me or praise me through the lens of that one mistake. But that happens a lot. Through, a, the, through one mistake, it can create a lens and people just judge you and they evaluate you and appraise you. And it can really spoil an otherwise great, great moment. I remember when uh, my youngest son Xander was a senior. Um, he was a football player, played high school football. And I was really proud of him and he had... Grown up being a football player when he was five years old, played in some youth leagues in Atlanta that were really good, and and um, he did really well there. And so when he went to he came, we moved here. He got involved. He played at Holland Park, and then he played for his school when he's in middle school. And and I just really loved football. Was really good at it. He started as a sophomore in his high school football team. I was real proud of that. And as a junior, he was on a uh, team that went to the quarterfinals of the state, should have, should have gone to the state championship game, but that's another uh, story there. I'm looking at a fellow mom here that remembers that game, but we, um, the refs cheated. Anyways, but we, uh, they really didn't. We lost a close game, but anyways, but we, um, uh, but, but, and he was an all-area linebacker, and, and I was real proud, as a junior, all-area, had a few uh, little small schools looking at him, and I was really proud of him, and I would, his, his former coach in Atlanta was like my best friend, and we talk all the time, and we talk sports, and I would tell him, you know, he would keep up with how Xander was doing, he's real proud of him, and he never had a chance to watch him play, I always tried to get him to come to Athens, and maybe go to a Georgia game, and, and, and come watch him on a Friday, and this was his senior year, it was about the fourth game of the year, and they were playing a team in Atlanta, in Mableton, our old home, and so they were able to come and watch the game, and this is a team that uh, it was, at a, it was a private school team that we had played the year before, and they were supposed to have been loading up a good team. And we beat them off. The, we, we beat them by 40-something points. And Xander had two interceptions in that game, and I just thought he was such a, that was a great game because they were supposed to have been so good. And so we were playing them again, and we looked at them, and their team was really big and, and looked really fast. 
But they looked that way the year before. So we thought we were ready for them. And we got the ball. In the first drive, we went down the field and we scored a touchdown. And I had some friends that were with me and was just bragging, yeah, you know, Xander, he's just a killer. He's, and, and, and then my two friends that were with me, Lawrence and Dexter, that were from the football team, they came and joined us. And it looked like a really good start, up seven to nothing on this team that was supposed to be so stacked. And, and, and so we were pretty confident and doing well. And then that team scored 48 straight points real quick. And it just was terrible. It looked like a bunch, literally it looked like a bunch of men playing a bunch of boys because that's really what it was. They had a wide receiver that was 6'4 and 200 pounds. They had two offensive linemen that were top 30 prospects that were played for Georgia, ones in the NFL. They just demolished our team. And I went from being so proud to being, ugh, you know, it was just disappointing. And, and, and then I remember after the game, Xander came and he saw a couple of his, his friends that were played. And he was like, because he's like going, you're viewing me through the lens of this defeat. You're viewing me through what you just saw. And, and it's, just, it's just a terrible thing. And, and, and this is what shame is. It's when people are viewing us through an unfavorable lens. It's their view of us. And it's how we react to it. It's how we try to compensate for it. And, and it's a terrible thing that all humans have to live through. And we can see this in the Garden of Eden with the fall of man. If you look at man in, in, when he's created in Genesis 2 and then in Genesis 3, we have, of course, a story where, where he's tempted and uh, he bites, he and his wife bite of the fruit, Adam and Eve do. And when they bite of the fruit, something happens to them instantly. They know they are naked. They're ashamed. And because of this realization of what they had always been, but it, it, they ran and they hid from God. They hid from each other and they hid from God. They ran and hid because of shame. And when God came walking through the garden looking for them, they were nowhere to be found. And he asked the question, where are you? And they're gone. And they went and they actually sewed together fig leaves to cover up their, their, their parts. And, and when God looked at them, he was, it was just a, a bad thing. And we, we can see sort of the, the humiliation that they must have gone through and the shame. Sitting there, guilty, they'd fallen they're trying to cover themselves with a, with a bunch of leaves. And then as we understand this, God, of course, told them the consequences of sin. They were banished from this paradise and from this garden. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we read a very powerful verse. It tells, lets you and I know a lot about God, what he's like, what he wants for us. And in verse 21, it says that the Lord God made skins. To cover Adam and his wife. He made skins. Here's this couple. The worst moment that ever could have happened. They're shamed. They're feeling themselves tainted. And dirty. And defiled. And they, they're, they can probably think God's seeing them in this way. And they're trying to cover up for it. And as they leave. God does something. He kind of tips his hand. Of the kind of salvation he was going to bring. And the kind of God he is. 
He's like, man, I don't want you experiencing this. I don't want you living under. This is not how human beings need to live. They don't need to live under shame. They don't need to live under this feeling of defilement. You don't need to live feeling that you're being viewed through the lens of your worst mistakes and your worst moments. I'm going to myself make a covering. And I'm going to cover you myself. I'm going to do it myself and make sure your shame is covered. And, and this is the, the, the powerful salvation, a foretelling of the powerful salvation that God was going to bring to us through Christ. Look at, look at 1 John. Let's read from this passage. 1 John chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5. John's writing to this audience and he says, This is the message we have heard from him and we declare it to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. As we read this letter from John and this part of this letter from John, there's two truths that he seems to be driving through uh, this part of this letter. The number one truth is that God is holy. He's light. There's no darkness in him at all. And that if you and I want to have a relationship with him, and anybody does, they're going to have to have it on his terms, which is that we be free of sin. No sin at all. And then he goes on and he says something else. He says, you know what? Let's face it, guys. You're sinful. Don't lie to yourself. You're sinful. And we need Jesus Christ. And he calls him two things there you know, to remove our sin. He calls him one, the advocate. Now, an advocate back in those days was a little bit of a, a courtroom character. It was somebody who was not quite your defense attorney, but like a witness who would argue for your case to a judge. If back in those days you went before a, a judge in a court case, your advocate, is the Greek word's parakletus, he would come and he would say, Judge, I know this person. This is what they've done. This is, and he would make the case to the judge of why they should be found not guilty. And he says, Jesus is like our advocate. And here's how he advocates for us. He comes and he tells God, look, you know what? Those sins he committed, I have already paid for them. They've been paid for. He should not be held accountable for those sins. I have taken them away. They've been paid for. If you were driving like a maniac... And you went before a judge, and he said, you're either going to spend six months in jail, 
or pay a $25,000 fine. If somebody paid your $25,000 fine, what is the just thing for the judge to do? To do what? To let you go. If the judge said you're still going to spend six months in jail, you'd say that's unjust. And this is kind of the point John's making here. Is it the just thing for God to do? Because sins have been paid for, is to accept that payment. He's your advocate. And this is who, when we look at Jesus Christ in the Gospels, when he was here on earth, we see a guy who was the advocate for the sinner, don't we? Think about the story. It's a famous story. It's in John chapter 8. There was a woman who was caught in adultery. She was brought before him in the act. I mean, a very shameful situation. And, and these religious people are demanding that Jesus, you know, sanction the stoning of this woman. That they just take stones and beat her to death with, with rocks. And, and Jesus stands between the accusers and the sinner. He's the champion of the sinner. Never forget that. He's the sinner's champion. And he stands there and he says, you know what? You without sin, you cast the first stone. And he, he fights for her and he takes up for her. And that's, that's who he is. He's the advocate of the sinful. And we have, he says, we have an advocate. The, the other thing he talks about Christ as, and this is the word I want to look at this morning. It says that he is the atoning sacrifice. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And this is one of the metaphors we're looking at. Because he has become the atoning sacrifice. Because he has provided atonement. What does that mean? That he is our atoning sacrifice. That he's provided atonement for us. Well, atonement was a, a word in the Greek. Uh, excuse me, in the Greek it's the word heliamos. In the, in the Hebrew, it's the word kapor. And it literally means to remove from God's sight. When we say atonement, it means that our sin has been removed from God's sight. Now, I want to illustrate this, if we could get this up here. In, in the Old Testament, there's a book called the book of Hebrews. It's a great book to read. And, and what Hebrews does, it talks about, it, it's writing to an audience of Jewish Christians... And it's writing to them about how their ceremonies that they practiced all their lives, this sacrificial system, how it illustrates what Jesus did on the cross. And, and there was one day in the... Uh, in, in the uh, okay. There was one day in the uh, Hebrew calendar... Their most holy day, it was called Yom Kippur. And it meant the day of atonement. It meant the day that our sins would be covered. And here's how this ceremony went. They, they would get ready for it. There would be a lot of preparations. But on the day of atonement, there would be a priest, the high priest. And he would go into a place called the Holy of Holies. It's a place where God dwelt. And the idea was he was going to go before God on behalf of the people. And so the priest, the first thing he would do is he would take a goat and he would kill a goat. He'd spill its blood out and he would take that blood and he would apply it to himself. Different like on his ear and different parts of his robes. And it would, it would be, the, the idea was this blood is being shed 
to atone for my sins. And then he would take the other goat and he would put his hands on this goat. It was called the scapegoat. And he would confess all the sins of the people for that year. And they would take that goat and they would lead it away out into the wilderness. The idea is our sins are being taken away. And so he was providing us for his own sins. And then he would remove those sins. And then he would take a bull and he would kill it, pour its blood out. And he would take this blood into this place where they understood God to dwell, the Holy of Holies. And he would apply the blood to the altar And in that way, they understood he was atoning for their sins. He was covering them. He was taking them out of God's sight. Now, this is what this was like. This is the effect of it. This is how they understood it. When my sins in the Old Testament were atoned for, they were covered. Okay? And so you'd you'd go before God with, on your account, as we saw, sin, 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 sin. It's covered. It's like, you kind of know something's there, but this sort of covers it. You're, you're not aware of it. And an example I would say is, is, that might help you understand this, if you ever take a credit card and you run it up, and you run up a, a, the, the, the balance on it, and you get in debt, every month you can pay the minimal payment. And if you pay the minimal payment Every month, you're in good standing with the creditors. They're not going to come arrest you or whatever they do. I don't know what they do. But they're, they're not going to sell your stuff or, or whatever. You can, you can manage, the, the, you have a manageable debt. But you still have a debt. The debt hasn't been removed. It hasn't been wiped out. You're just able to service it. And this is kind of what this was. It was them servicing uh, their sins. Every year they do this over and over again. The blood. And the, and the writer of Hebrews says, you know, to these, these Christians, he goes, now when you think about this system, there's a couple things wrong with it. One is, why are you doing it every year? It lets you know it doesn't, it's not permanent. It's not everlasting. You can't really be at peace that your sins are gone forever. It's just every year. And he says, you know why? Let's look at it. The high priest that does it, he's sinful. He's got to make an offering for himself, number one. Number two, what's taking away your sin in the Old Testament? It's the blood of a bull. It's the blood of a goat. How could the blood, the life of a bull or a goat, take away the sins of a nation, of a person? How could it do that? It's not worth enough. It's not priceless enough to do it. And so what, in effect, would happen is this is what they did every year. The sins were covered. You couldn't see them, but they kind of knew they were there. Now, here's what Christ did as a sacrifice. When he spilled out his blood on the cross, when he became the atoning sacrifice for our sins, he wiped away our sins. You, you do it, Amber. You're better than I am. Look, at this. he wiped them away wiped them out getting back to the financial thing it's like he paid the whole debt off he didn't just make a monthly payment for us he wiped it out he is 
the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so here's, the, here's what the New Testament communicates over and over again. And I want you and I to understand. When you and I stand before God, the lens he views you through is not your mistakes. It's not your sins. It's not your defilement. It's not through the guilt you and I feel. He views us through the lens that blood has been shed and your sins have been wiped out and they've been put away. And that the shame and the guilt and the, the, the tendency we have to be like Adam and Eve and go, oh, I'm just not going to go Godward today. I'm gonna, that needs to be gone. That needs to be gone because sin has been wiped out. It's been removed. It's been remitted. You know, there's a powerful song sung by a, a, a Christian band used to be really popular called Mercy Me. And, and the song was called Unaware. And, and the lyrics went like this. They would go, how can it be? How is this possible that somebody like me can stand before God, and the refrain would go, unaware of my sin, unaware of my shame. There is something powerful and riveting that can happen in the life of a human being when they understand Christ wipes away their sin. God is not viewing you through the lens of your sins, of your mistakes, of your shortcomings, of your failures. He is viewing you through this incredible sacrifice. God in utter holiness has spilled his blood out on a cross to wipe away our sins. And he does it thoroughly, completely, eternally. Nothing needs to be added to it. It doesn't need to be repeated again. It just needs to be trusted in by us. It needs to be believed in by us and acted on regularly by us because you are never more powerful you're never more free you're never more capable you're never more confident than when as a human being you stand in the presence of God by the blood of Jesus free of guilt and shame and defilement and you know it there is nothing more powerful in your life. God designed a salvation for you and I that came through his son to where you and I could experience that through a relationship with him. And it's utterly empowering. Utterly empowering. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul writes, and he says this about God. He said, he predestined you and I to stand holy and blameless in his sight. You believe that about yourself? Do you believe what the Bible says about you? You are standing holy and blameless in God's sight. Colossians 1.22 says, In taking away our sin, he reconciled us to God to present you holy, blameless, and without a stain in his eyes. Do you believe that about yourself? Holy, blameless, without a stain in God's sight. Jude chapter, 
Jude, verse 24 of Jude. It's one chapter. Jesus' brother, Jude, wrote a little letter. And in, in verse 24 of it, he says, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence blameless, shame-free, with joy inexpressible. Guys, there's nothing more empowering than for you as a believer in Christ, as a follower of Jesus, to come before Almighty God through His blood, through His atoning sacrifice, and realize your sins are atoned for. They are out of God's sight once and for all, forever. The Bible describes it like this in, in, in Isaiah. It describes that your sins are like the morning mist. Anybody ever wake up in, a, in, a, in the morning and see the mist, see the fog? And you go, oh, the fog, the fog. And then what happens? The sun comes up and where, where's the fog? It's gone. It's gone. And here's what... Here's what is, is being communicated here in this letter of John by Paul, by all the New Testament writers. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He has removed sin from God's sight. And guilt and shame are done. They're gone. You know, when we think of ourselves as followers of Jesus, what's the most common name that categorizes us? Anybody know what it is? Y'all know it. What is it? We are, I think I heard the word Christian. Did I hear the word Christian somewhere under those masks? Okay, the word Christian was being uttered in a garbled way. The word Christian, yeah, we, we're called Christians. You know, if you look in the Bible, the New Testament, I think there's only a couple times where that word's even mentioned. It's not the common uh, vernacular of the gospel writers and the apostles to describe other Christians. <clears throat> you know what the, the, the word they used? You might take a wild guess. You know, who knows what it was? When you read the New Testament and it addresses believers, what is Paul or John, what do they usually call them? What's the name? Somebody say it out loud. Saint, yes, the word saint. Now, when we think of a saint, we think of a special, super-due, holy person or maybe a you know, football team in New Orleans. Uh, but, but, when, but when the word saint, the, the entomology of it is really interesting in, in, in where they got that word. It's a word that was used in the metal business back in the ancient world. And here's what happened. Back then, if you were oaring for a certain metal, you were in a mine and you would get copper or silver or gold or, or whatever, you would get a big chunk of this metal. And you would get it out and you'd put it on a car and you'd take it back and you'd take it to a blacksmith. And here's what the blacksmith would do. He would take that metal, he'd wash it off, get all the dirt off of it. And then he would start a process. He would beat it and, and, and you know, beat it into fine parts. And then he would put it in a melter and they would melt it. And when he would melt it, all the impurities would come up and he would scrape all these impurities off. And they'd melt it again. More impurities would come up and he'd scrape them off. And he would keep doing that until eventually he could look down. All the impurities would be gone. No dross, no dirt, no defilement. And he would look in pure gold or silver or copper and he would see his face. He would look in it and he'd see his face. And when the metal had reached that place, they called that metal 
a saint. What a powerful word. What a powerful picture of what it means to be a Christian. To mean when you accept Jesus Christ in your life as the atoning sacrifice for your sins. That all the dirt, all the dross, all the defilement has been removed. Every, every bit of it. And God sees his self in, your, in you and he says, saint, no dross, no defilement, no dirt. This is a powerful thing. God designed a salvation that you and I can experience. Where we could have our shame washed away, removed by his blood. And I don't know if there's anything more powerful you could experience than to be before a holy God and know that he sees you in that light. It's a powerful thing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the work of your son. We thank you for his death on a cross. We thank you that his blood, as John said, purifies us, cleanses us of all sin. And I thank you as we've received him as our Lord and Savior that all of our sin is cleansed. It's washed away. Just as we saw on the board, it is wiped out. It is gone. Just like the morning mist. Help us to believe that and to live and to be empowered uh, before you and, and, and in our daily lives by that truth. Help us to make it ours. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in His purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.